Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. They cheered about being proud election deniers. They hawked fake supplements as cures for COVID. They presented inscrutable flowcharts about global banking conspiracies. At one point, they just played an extended clip from Oliver Stone's JFK movie, the 1991 conspiracy film where Kevin Costner proves the Kennedy assassination was a deep state plot by the CIA. That was what happened today on the Reawaken America tour at Donald Trump's Doral Golf Resort in Florida. The event is part of a nationwide speaking tour led by former Trump official and convicted felon Mike Flynn. The featured speakers at that event were Eric Trump and his wife, Laura. Now, earlier this week in this this very hour of television, my colleague Rachel Maddow reported on this event. She pointed out that among the list of potential speakers were two people who had a history of saying things like this. If you look what happened under the attacks in 911, again, all coming out of the same group of people that has done a very good job at hiding under the religion of Judaism. They use Judaism as a cover for what they're really doing. People are going to learn a lot about World War II and Hitler and the Nazis. They're going to learn about Hitler was actually fighting the same people that we're trying to take down today. That Trump family event was said to include not one, but at least Two speakers with a history of transparently anti-Semitic comments. After Rachel pointed that out on her show on Monday of this week, Eric Trump was outraged. He tweeted, Rachel Maddow is walking a fine line. If she or anyone else even remotely suggests I am anti-Semitic, I will not hesitate to take legal action against them personally. Okay. Okay, Eric Trump. But then later on this week, it was announced that Those two speakers, including the Hitler was fighting the same people we are guy, they were dropped from the event. They would no longer be speaking at Trump's property or sharing a stage with Trump's son. Progress, right? Sort of. For starters, even though they will not be appearing at this event, these two speakers are still on the Reawaken America tour and its lineup for future events, which means that Trump's property is still very much hosting an organization promoting known anti-Semites, even if those precise known anti-Semites will be skipping this particular leg of the tour. It's like seeing a touring production of Cats. And the playbill says that understudies will be playing the parts of Mr. 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 Sophilies and Rum Tum Tugger, my favorite characters from Cats, but the original cast members will be back for the rest of the tour. It's still Cats. Also, for the record, speakers who did not get booted from Trump's property are not without their own controversies, including speakers like a convicted Capitol rioter, a leading promoter of the QAnon and Pizzagate conspiracies, and a doctor who believes that demon sperm and alien DNA are responsible for many of America's health problems. The caravan of right-wing figures who are appearing 
range with this range from conspiratorial weirdos to outright extremists. And we are now approaching a point where Trump and his family's proximity to these kinds of fringe figures is becoming normal. After all, the president hosted a Holocaust-denying white supremacist for dinner at Mar-a-Lago, and everybody seems to have just moved on from that. Extreme ideologies like white supremacy and Christian nationalism, they are not just a Trump thing either. In a recent radio interview, Alabama Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville was asked if he believed white he believes white nationalists should be allowed in the military. And Tuberville responded by saying, well, they call them that. I call them Americans. Yesterday, NBC News congressional correspondent Julie Serkin asked Senator Tuberville what exactly he meant by that. Sir, if there are folks with white nationalist beliefs, of which there are in this country, unfortunately, do you believe they should be serving in the military? Uh, we got to define that first. What is a white nationalist? Someone who propagates Nazism, someone who doesn't believe that black and brown you people are equal. You think a white nationalist is a, is, a, is a Nazi? Well, that is one of their beliefs. Well, I don't look at it like that. I, How do you look at it? I look at a white nationalist as a, as a, a Trump Republican. That's what we're called all the time, a mega person. That's what do I'm you just, agree that, that, with that well, assumption? Yeah, I agree that we should not be characterizing Trump supporters as white nationalists. A spokesperson for Senator Tuberville tried to clarify those comments, saying Senator Tuberville's quote shows that he was being skeptical of the notion that there are white nationalists in the military, not that he believes they should be in the military. It's pretty unclear, though, whether Senator Tuberville thinks white nationalism is a bad thing. And that's because today's Republican Party is increasingly embracing white nationalism and explicitly white Christian nationalism. In Texas, Republican legislators have introduced a bunch of new bills that seem to be trying to turn Texas public schools into centers of Christian nationalism. The Texas State Senate has just passed a bill mandating that the Ten Commandments be displayed prominently. It wasn't enough to just have the Ten Commandments in every public school. They must now be in every public classroom across the state. And they are sort of the jumping off point. The Washington Post reports one bill introduced by Texas Republicans would allow schools to mandate a period of prayer and Bible reading on each school day. Another said school personnel must be allowed to engage in religious speech or prayer while on duty. Another would allow schools to replace school counselors with chaplains. That last proposal, the one replacing public school counselors with Christian chaplains, that last proposal has drawn some real pushback from Texas Democrats. Earlier this week, one Texas state representative confronted his Republican colleagues about the agenda behind these bills. Are you aware of the National School Chaplains Association? I've heard of them. They uh, testified in favor of the bill, both in the House and in the Senate. Are you aware that the stated purpose of this organization is, quote, to enhance his presence by infiltrating the system and supporting Christians functioning and operating inside the school systems? I'm not advised. What I'm aware of is that this, what this bill does is allow uh, school districts to determine whether or not they want to allow chaplains as hired or volunteer personnel. To be a school counselor in Texas, you have to have a master's degree. Are we requiring that school chaplains have a master's degree in this bill? Uh, I, don't, I don't believe so. Um, school counselors have to teach in Texas public schools for two years in a classroom before they can be a school counselor. 
are we requiring the chaplains teach in a classroom for two years before becoming it, a school in, chaplain? In the definition of the counts of the chaplains that we had before, uh, chaplains go through extensive training. I'm looking uh, at the website of the organization I mentioned earlier, National School Chaplains Association. They admit on their website that the training is, quote, minimal. It includes a 48-hour program that's equivalent to one college credit. That doesn't sound extensive to me. For the past few years, we have watched the Republican Party embrace the most extreme elements of its radical base. And now the two have become so wedded that it is hard to tell where one ends and the other begins. Joining us now is Texas State Representative James Tallarico, who you just saw in those clips. Also joining me is Michelle Goldberg, opinion columnist for The New York Times and author of Kingdom Coming, The Rise of Christian Nationalism. Thank you both for joining me tonight. Representative Tallarico, I, first of all, I think a lot of people in Texas are probably very thankful for the, the line of questioning and the oratory that you've given uh, on the subject a lot of a lot of these bills. How do your Republican counterparts um, in the state house, manage the, the this line of criticism that this is nothing more than a, a blatant attempt to install white Christian nationalism in the public school system. Well, first, thanks for having me, Alex, and thank you for covering this really important topic. Um, you know, I sometimes have Republican colleagues who approach me in private after these exchanges on the House floor or in committee and thank me for my questioning. You know, we still got common sense Republicans here in our state who, you know, are being dragged to the right by MAGA Republicans, by Christian nationalists in their primaries. And so there are some who are thankful that representatives like me are, are speaking out against these efforts. But we have to have folks in the Republican Party speak out as well. Otherwise, we're going to have Christian nationalists infiltrating our schools and indoctrinating our children. Is there any sense of contrition or apology or um, sheepishness about the fact that this is so blatantly an attempt to basically indoctrinate children and into it's, it's effectively religious doctrine indoctrination? Is there any attempt to hide that? No, the extreme Republicans who are pushing these uh, these different measures are pretty shameless uh, in their uh, in their objectives, which are to indoctrinate our kids. You know, Governor Abbott here in our state is fond of saying that schools are for education, not indoctrination. And what I can't figure out is why having a rainbow in your classroom is considered indoctrination and having mm -hmm. the Ten Commandments in your classroom is not. You know, this legislative session has been all about parental rights, and they've used that to discriminate against gay kids. They've used it to defund our schools with voucher scams. And so when I had this bill come before the Public Education Committee, I asked, would the Republican author be open to requiring parental consent before religious commandments could be posted in the classroom? And she refused. So I, I don't know why parental consent is necessary when we're trying to teach things like empathy and kindness or basic sex education, but parental consent is not necessary when we are literally indoctrinating our students into one particular faith tradition. Yeah, Michelle, you know, I'm I'm struck. I'm old enough to remember when you couldn't say my goal is explicitly to in in introduce Christian indoctrination into the public school system. It, if you listen to these representatives in Texas, if you listen to Tommy Tuberville, who is a United States senator, the embrace of white Christian nationalism is 
It's transparent. It's above board. It's there is nothing. There's almost nothing to be ashamed of, except it's kind of awkward when you remind people that Nazism and white Christian nationalism actually have quite a bit of overlap. Um, does is this the inevitable endpoint of all of this in your mind? So you mentioned that book that I wrote about Christian nationalism. That book came out in 2006. And when that book came out, I could, you know, even though that book was meant to raise an amount, an alarm, I couldn't have imagined then the extent to which this sort of thing would be mainstreamed. Because back then you heard these ideas, but you heard them at obscure conferences, you know, maybe a few backbench members of the Republican Party would get on board, you know, certainly not senators and certainly not the president of the United States and his family. I mean, the thing that is so striking to me about the Reawaken America tour is, as you said, you know, it's not, oh, my God, we've discovered that there are people who've praised Hitler, who said, I believe that one of them said the same people, you know, Hitler was fighting the same people that we're trying to fight, which actually is true. Um but they don't say, well, we want to distance ourselves from this. We have to cancel this event. It's let's just cancel these two people for this one event. So let's make sure that we have two degrees of separation in, um, from people who praise Hitler instead of one degree. And I think that what they've made pretty clear is that white Christian nationalists are an integral part of their base, that they can't get elected without them, that they believe that they need to flatter them and appeal to them. And going back to um, what the congressman said, or what, what the representative said, you know, of course, it's never been about the rights of all parents. It's been about the rights of a very specific group of parents who this movement believes have the right to kind of control all our institutions, just as this movement has always believed that white Christians have, you know, sort of a special sort of um a special role to play in this country and are kind of more American than everybody else. Um, Representative, I, I got to ask you, I mean, I understand that there's a, a an ideology that is lays at the a foundation of all of this, but there also seems to be a political reality. And I'm wondering if you can weigh in on this. The Washington Post reports that Republicans have a lock on power, but the state continues inexorably moving away from them culturally and demographically. This is the state of Texas. I think this is the death rattle of a dying worldview. That's a quote from you. In some ways, the far right is like a wounded animal here in Texas. They know Texas is becoming increasingly diverse. It's becoming younger and that new Texas is not going to stand for these extreme policies. Can you elaborate on that a little bit more? And do you really I mean, I think a lot of us have been waiting for that moment when Texas does. There's always every four years, Texas is turning blue. Texas is turning blue. It hasn't happened yet. And do you think the groundswell of progressive uh, support to push back on these policies will amass in time to actually stop them because Republicans have had a, a frightening amount of success with actually instituting these policies. Well, as an eighth generation Texan, I am begging you and other folks watching across the country not to give up on our great state. You know, Mitt Romney beat President Obama here by double digits in 2012, but President Trump only won this state by five points in 2020. And so our state is moving in the right direction and we need more help more support to to ensure that we have a texas that's worthy of the next generation you know i just want to say i i i'm a christian myself um, my granddad was a baptist preacher in south texas um, i still attend the same church where i was baptized when i was four years old these bills are not only 
unconstitutional. They're not only un-American, they're also deeply unchristian. You know, Christian nationalism is an oxymoron. Um, when Jesus was tempted by the devil out in the wilderness, one of the things the devil offered was political power. He offered all the kingdoms in the world, and Jesus rejected it. This is a, a religion of universal love and inclusion, and these bills are the, are the exact opposite of that. They are arrogant, they are exclusionary, and they're idolatrous. And so I think it's incumbent upon Christians to speak out against people who are trying to pervert our faith in the name of Christ. Yeah, I, th- I think that point is so well taken. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you have to embrace Christian nationalism in the same way that um, just because you're a patriot doesn't mean you have to embrace jingoism. Um, Michelle, what is so useful about white Christian nationalism is that in many ways it acts as a hub for all these different spokes which have become priorities of the GOP, whether it's anti-abortion measures, whether it's anti-LGBT and trans measures, whether it's, you know, combating woke ideology, diversity, equity, inclusion. I mean, white Christian nationalism is a very large bucket into which many of these initiatives fall. Was it always that way? Well, I think that it's it's in some ways it's gotten more extreme as the country has moved away from it. It was one thing, I think, when the people who espoused this ideology believed that they were an oppressed majority, believed that they just needed to, you know, take the country back. The, you know, the name of Jerry Falwell's organization was the moral majority. And I don't think I think that most of them understand uh, on some level that they might be a majority of the people that they consider to be, quote unquote, true Americans, but they're not a majority of the citizenry. And so you've seen the movement become both more apocalyptic and more hostile to democracy as kind of democracy has become an impediment to the sort of society that they want to create. Uh, Representative Tallarico, do you sense any sense, uh, is there any sense of irony or hypocrisy um, that is felt on the part of these Republicans in your state that the titular head of their party is the least Christian person we've probably had in the Oval Office? I mean, is there ever any explanation for that, uh, given the zealotry with which they approach um, the tenets of the so-called Christian ideology? You know, I think I remember former President Trump being asked to name his favorite Bible verse, and he answered all of it. Um, So, yeah, (laughs) it doesn't seem like that irony has sunk in. But, you know, in this, just in the past week here in Texas, we've experienced yet another deadly mass shooting um, where uh, children were killed. And this is not even a year since the massacre in Uvalde, Texas, you know, The Republican Party here in our state during this legislative session has talked a big game about protecting children. You know, they're banning books in the name of protecting children. They are discriminating against LGBTQ people in the name of protecting children, banning drag queens in the name of protecting children. And yet they won't lift a finger to address the number one cause of death for children in the United States, which is gun violence. So the hypocrisy runs deep in the Republican Party here in our state. And it's going to take all of us to call it out, to expose it, and ultimately to beat them at the ballot box. Texas State Representative James Tallarico and the always wonderful Michelle Goldberg, thank you both for your time and thoughts tonight. Really appreciate it.
Still to come tonight, we have new reporting about the web of dark money tied to a man whose lifelong mission is to push America's judiciary to the far right. Plus, gird yourself. What would a second Trump presidential term look like? Well, we got a big clue this week. We'll have more on that coming up next. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. There are a lot of things to say about the CNN town hall with Donald Trump this week. One of the less discussed, but no less disturbing parts of it, was the strategy that Trump laid out for a second term. What do you think about the United States' current debt situation, and how can we move forward? I say to the Republicans out there, congressmen, senators, if they don't give you massive cuts, you're going to have to do a default. Another immigration policy you had was the zero-tolerance immigration policy that separated families at the border. If you are reelected, are you ruling out instituting that? Well, when you have that policy, people don't come. If a family hears that they're going to be separated, they love their family. They don't come. Will you commit to accepting the results of the election regardless of the outcome? Do you want me to answer it again? If I think it's an honest election, I would be honored to. And you know what? If I don't win, this country is going to be in big trouble. It's so sad to see what's happening. In just over an hour, Trump revealed that he is ready to break whatever norms and institutions he did not smash the first time around. Or, as The New York Times puts it, the second term vision Mr. Trump sketched out at a CNN town hall event on Wednesday would represent a sharp departure from core American values that have been at the bedrock of the nation for decades. Its creditworthiness, its credibility with international allies, and its adherence to the rule of law at home. Mr. Trump's provocations were hardly shocking. His time in office was often defined by a the-rules-don't-apply-to-me approach to governance and a lack of interest in upholding the post-World War II national security order. And at 76, he is not bound to change much. In other words, Trump is still Trump and will always be Trump. But if reelected, 2020 Trump is just the beginning, according to a former Trump cabinet official. Quote, from my perspective, there was an evolution of Donald Trump over his four years, with 2020, I think, being the most dramatic example of him. The real him, said Mark Esper, who served as Trump's defense secretary. And I suspect that would be his starting point if he were to win office in 2024. Joining us now is MSNBC contributor and staff writer for The Atlantic, Mark Leibovich. Mark, it's great to see you this evening, even though I have to introduce you on the heels of a nightmarish scenario for a lot of people, which is Trump 2024, it's even Trumpier. I mean, I think yeah. it's, it's hard for a lot of people to envision how the man who reportedly somewhat clearly incited an insurrection 
could be the starting point for a 2020, 20, a 2024 version. I mean, the, 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 the way in which Trump left office was so extreme, so unprecedented. It's hard to imagine that there's anywhere to go from there. And yet the suggestion today is that there is a place, there is an even more extreme corner of the universe that Trump could go to. Do you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think there are a few things to unpack here. I mean, first of all, um, what Secretary Esper said was 2020 would be the starting point. I mean, we're, we're now three years on. So if you think about 2021, uh, which was the, you know, the month of the insurrection, I mean, he was way off the rails in 2021, in that month of January, harrowing month of January compared to the previous year. Um, he's now that much farther down the road. And, and the other thing you have to think about is if, if he were to get elected, and, and this is why I think this town meeting is is important. I mean, you can talk all about whether it should have happened, uh, how it came together, how it was produced, and so forth. But ultimately, this does give you a window, a, a frankly very terrifying window, but a window nonetheless into what could be a fairly realistic look at what his next term could be. I mean, we're through many stages of not so much denial, but but for a while it was like, no, he's done. Uh, the insurrection is, is going to put him away forever. Now it's like, well, Republicans will stop him. You know, DeSantis is the next guy. Now it looks like he's going to probably be the nominee again. And then, you know, oh, he'll never be elected. Um, he could be elected. And if he's elected, this is what it's going to look like. Because, I mean, the America that elects Donald Trump, if it elects Donald Trump in 2024, will be sanctioning so much more free reign, carte blanche, than what they did in 2016. It, he would have gotten away with literally murder in many cases. I mean, certainly on January 6th. I mean, what he actually would be able to have come back from. And it would just be a stunning scenario. And, and he could pretty much, you know, I think think he could do what he wanted. And I don't think there's any precedent for the Senate or the House, especially if they're run by Republicans, to have any kind of check and balance on him. Well, what's also notable is when, you know, you read through the annals of reporting on the Trump years in the White House, there were people inside the White House, inside the Oval Office, inside various cabinet level agencies who were doing their best to make sense of the mess. And what we know now is none of those people would be involved in a second term. Rolling Stone is reporting right. today. The former president has privately noted on several occasions over the past month how he's seriously considering names like Mike Flynn and Jeff Clark for high level positions in a potential second White House term. Trump was self-aware enough to say that any senior role for Flynn would probably have to be a non-Senate confirmed appointment. Well, that's good that he's aware that nobody wants Mike Flynn back in the government. But I mean, the notion that Mark Milley or Mark Esper or any of the people that sort of kept the guardrails up would be back for a second term is like laughable. Instead, you would have people like Jeff Clark who would happily have rubber stamped another insurrection. And I guess I wonder, <laughs> does no one in Washington see a problem with that? Oh, I think many, many, many people in Washington and, and presumably throughout America see a problem in this. But as he taught us the first time, I mean, there are many ways to put very, very scary people in very, very sensitive positions without any kind of Senate oversight or confirmation. Um, I mean, Mike Flynn was a national security advisor, and that is, I mean, for a few weeks at least, that is as sensitive a job as you can have in the White House. And, and he, you know, he serves at the the pleasure and the nomination of the president it doesn't have to be confirmed. Uh, Steve Bannon was in the White House. Jared was in the White House. I mean, go down the list. So, you know, you can put a lot of people there without, you know, getting any kind of consent and, you know, getting Senate confirmation. So, yeah, I mean, 
we we know at this point that he will try. He will try to go as far as he possibly can. And if there's one thing we've learned is that he will get away. He will try to do whatever he can get away with. And Republicans certainly have given him a very, very wide breadth over the last six or seven years. I would argue that not only are they giving him a wide berth, the things that he said on stage, particularly on, for example, the debt ceiling, are de facto marching orders for Republicans currently engaged with that political negotiation. I mean, I don't know if you saw it that way, but the party is so adrift without leadership. And when Trump comes down from the mount and issues forth a suggestion that the United States should default unless they get the cuts they want, you tend to believe that's what the GOP is going to do. I mean, do you think he holds that much sway over legislators in Congress? Oh, unquestionably. And let's be perfectly clear. The only reason he's telling people to let the American, the, the United States default on its status because he's not president. I mean, he was president and, you know, the, the House, you know, very gladly sort of raised the debt ceiling. And either it was because, you know, Nancy Pelosi had a sense of, you know, this being the right thing to do or, you know, Paul Ryan did when he was speaker. So, yeah, I mean, this is I mean, this is not his problem. He just wants to sow chaos here and he thinks it would be bad for Biden and it probably would be. So I think that's what his perspective is. But if you think about, you know, debt Debt and paying your bills, you know, when he was in office, I mean, he, he you know, the, the debt went up like exponentially. So it's certainly not like he had a, a brush with fiscal responsibility anytime in the last few years. <laughs> yes, he did. He had a brush with a lot of things, but not fiscal responsibility. Mark Leibovich, yeah. my friend, it is always good to see you. Thanks for making the time tonight. Thanks, Alex. Always good to be here. We s- Still have more to come tonight. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas once jokingly called him the third most powerful person in the world. Today, new reporting gives us a reason to believe that. That's next. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater. And this is your wake up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. You can live out your MasterChef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. You know, Leonard, since you're the number three most powerful person in the world, we have to show. (laughs) Right. God help us. God help us. What a joker, this guy. The guy Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas was joking about being the third most powerful person in the world. His name is Leonard Leo. You might recognize him as the longtime executive vice president of the influential conservative legal organization, the Federalist Society. Or more recently, you might recognize him as the guy doing that thing with his hands that Mr. Burns and the Simpson does when he's being evil. He's a guy doing that in this portrait of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and his conservative billionaire buddy Harlan Crow. Today, the New York Times is out with the news that a nonprofit conservative activist group founded and controlled by the same guy, Leonard Leo, spent $183 million between April 2021 and April 2022. 
Mr. Leo himself described his group's work as an attempt to match democratic efforts in the world of so-called dark money, and that it was, quote, high time for the conservative movement to be among the ranks of George Soros and other left-wing philanthropists. But where did Leonard Leo's group get this kind of cash in the first place? From a different conservative billionaire. Leo's group got a $1.6 billion, with a B, billion dollar donation a few years ago from a single conservative billionaire. And what did Leo's group spend last year's $183 million on? We have no idea. The way groups like this work is they pass their money through other funds to obscure where all that money is actually going. So it's all one big black hole. But we do have a potential clue about the kind of thing this money might be going toward. Last week, the Washington Post reported that in 2012, this same guy, Leonard Leo, directed conservative pollster Kellyanne Conway to bill a nonprofit he advised and to use that money to, quote, give Ginny Thomas another 25K. Ginny Thomas, as in the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. And Leonard Leo had really specific instructions for that $25,000. Quote, the paperwork should have no mention of Ginny, of course. Now, the nonprofit whose money Mr. Leo directed toward Ginny Thomas back in 2012, that group is still around and it is still affiliated with Mr. Leo. It has rebranded and it's now known as the 85 Fund, or the Honest Elections Project, its business alias. And it is a big part of the newly emboldened right-wing movement to tighten voting laws and to make it harder to vote in the first place. Now, I wouldn't say that Leonard Leo is necessarily the third most powerful person in the world, but the degree of power he does have over our politics does not feel like a laughing matter. When we come back, a clamor for justice after a homeless man is killed on a New York subway. But what does justice even look like in this case? That is coming up next. Those were some of the protesters calling for justice after the death of Jordan Neely, a homeless man whose death was captured on video last Monday when a 24-year-old Marine veteran named Daniel Penny put Neely in a fatal chokehold on the New York City subway while passengers on the train watched. Today, Penny surrendered to police and was charged with second-degree manslaughter. It's a felony that carries a maximum penalty of 15 years in prison. After the arraignment, Jordan Neely's family stood with their attorneys. No one on that train asked Jordan, what's wrong? How can I help you? He was choked to death instead. So for everybody saying, I've been on the train and I've been afraid before, and I can't tell you what I would have done in that situation, I'm going to tell you. Ask how you can help. Please. Before Jordan Neely became a name in the news and the subject of protests, he was known as a Michael Jackson impersonator, trying to make a little money doing the moonwalk. Neely was a part of the New York City fabric in a way. If you went through the Times Square subway station, you would have seen him. I myself saw him many, many times. Neely was also known to law enforcement. He told police that he was hearing voices as he tried to cope with schizophrenia and the trauma of his mother's murder, which happened when he was just 14 years old. Neely's situation was so extreme, it was so singular, that he was named on New York City's top 50 list 
which is a roster kept by the city's Department of Homeless Services. That list flags individuals with acute needs who often disappear from homeless shelters. The list is meant to help outreach organizations and homeless services look out for these folks and intervene. That list is just 50 people long. And to put that into focus, into perspective, last year, New York City estimated that about 3,400 people suffering from homelessness were living in public spaces, and many, if not most, were grappling with mental illness. So that's 50 people out of 3,400. And even on that list of the 50 New York residents of people the most desperately in need of shelter, Jordan Neely still slipped through the cracks. Joining us now is Jumani Williams, public advocate for the city of New York. Jumani, thank you so much for being here. I think a lot of us are trying to grapple with how this happened. And I just want to begin with that, the idea of this list. You know, he was singled out as someone particularly vulnerable whose needs were acute. And even then, the tragedy couldn't be stopped. I mean, what does that list represent and what does that say about the broader sort of drive to help the houseless? You know, first, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And, and I think you, you're pointing out something really important. One, I think it's good to have lists of people that need assistance from the city and other agencies or community groups. Uh, but what does it say that we still failed and we failed miserably? Many of us have been pointing out for quite some time that we do not have a continuum of care for people who are in mental health crisis, particularly those who are chronic homeless. Uh, our office have put out several reports on how we can fill in the gaps for that continuum of care. Uh, that's been ignored many times. Unfortunately, the last budget uh, where the governor of New York focused so much more on bail reform than on mental health and homelessness. And my hope is that the city budget coming up doesn't do the same. My question, I mean, when you talk about the governor, this has to ultimately run through Albany. Um, and all these politics are very different than New York City's politics. And the people who do not have homes, in many cases in New York City, are people of color. Do you think race factors into this? And how acutely is race undergirding all these decisions that are made up in the governor's seat? I think we know that race uh, very often uh, plays a role. And when you have race and class, uh, plays a role. Jordan is dead because he is he was black, homeless, and he was angry. Uh, and then before that, we failed him and we failed him miserably. Again, uh, the governor literally said that she was focused on bail reform, not because of facts, but because of articles in the news like the New York Post. Uh, but what we could have focused on was how do we build the continuum of care? Last year, we actually lost more homeless people who died in New York City streets than ever before. And the majority of them were also black. Uh, it is. I mean, as a New York City resident who sees people who are without out homes and clearly ill, the idea that we need to increase the care community for these folks is not lost on me. And yet police are often the first line of response when it comes to people who are homeless and living on the streets. And that system seems inherently flawed and, and in my opinion, totally broken. These people need medicine, they need empathy, they need care, and there doesn't seem to be any resourcing for that. Can you explain a little bit about what is allocated that is not from police department funds to help the people who are homeless and mentally ill? You know, so I have to tell you, we, I believe at a moment in time where the population more than ever has realized that police cannot be the first line of defense when it comes to people who are in mental health crisis. And yet our leaders are squandering this moment. 
They're not using this moment to build the infrastructure that's there. So I always point out that uh, NYPD, although our law enforcement partners have a role to play, they have access to unlimited overtime. But what if the Department of Health and Mental Hygiene actually had access to the same type of overtime? What if our community groups and peer support networks had access to the same kind of funds? What if we built an infrastructure that focused on the continuum of care after someone came out of the hospital? Because what we want to make clear is that this is not about involuntary hospitalizing people. You actually have the power to do that right now. But the question is what happens after they have to leave that hospital? If there's no continuum of care, if we haven't put the funding in there, if we haven't funded the community groups and the peer networks, what's going to happen to them? What's going to happen yeah. to the Jordan Neely? And that, and that is actually a part of the story of Jordan Neely, right? You come in, you go out, and then you're lost. But there's another piece of this that I find so heartbreaking, which is that people sat on that train and they watched this man die. And New York City is often uh, promoted as this bastion of multiculturalism and people mixing from different races and different classes all on the subway. And yet I think this moment revealed the lack of empathy, the lack of um, shared humanity, that people could watch a man be strangled to death and do nothing in the process. And I just wonder if you think setting just New York aside, whether that is a a cancer that is struck, you know, our society at large, that we can no longer see our fellow man or woman as a human being, that their struggle, if it's not directly intersecting ours, does not matter anymore. And I'll even add to that. We seem to be in this country now at a moment of time where simply having some discomfort means you can kill people. And so we've seen people ring the wrong doorbell, go in the wrong driveway, accidentally go in the wrong car accidentally uh, uh, say something to someone and people are killed. Here we had someone who literally said, I'm hungry and I, I need water, I need support, and he was killed. And people sat around and did nothing and actually some people uh, actually assisted, although there were a few folks that were telling Mr. Penny that he's actually going to die and nothing was done. And it seemed in death, we were doing the same thing we did in Jordan's life, which was dehumanized and not provide the services that was need, needed. And that's why it was so important for us to say there has to at least be some charges to respect the humanity of who he is, to respect that a black man who was homeless and mentally ill died. And we can't just pretend that that life did not matter. Um, as he, before he died, he yelled about being fed up and hungry, being tired of having nothing. And he said, I don't care if I die. I don't care if I go, go to jail. I don't have any food. I'm done. Jumani Williams, thank you so much for your time and your work tonight. Thank you. We'll be right back. The COVID-19 state of emergency ended yesterday in the U.S., marking today the first official day of the post-pandemic era. And yet more than three years since the pandemic started, it still feels too soon to see a headline like this. New College picks Trump's COVID advisor, Scott, La Scott Atlas, as commencement speaker. Remember Dr. Scott Atlas? He was not an expert in infectious diseases or public health, but he was on Fox News a lot talking about COVID in the summer of 2020. And apparently Donald Trump liked what Dr. Scott Atlas had to say. And that advice was, in essence, let COVID spread. We will build up herd immunity. And so Donald Trump picked Scott Atlas to be a special coronavirus advisor. Another guy who really liked Scott Atlas's arguments for keeping schools and businesses open during the pandemic was Florida's Republican Governor Ron DeSantis. 
Last week, we learned Scott Atlas will be the commencement speaker at New College, which is that embattled honors college in Florida that has become a a kind of lab for the so-called anti-woke policies of Governor DeSantis. In just the first couple months of the year, DeSantis's handpicked allies overrode the will of the faculty and the students and their parents. They fired the college's president. They ended the school's Office of Diversity and Equity, and they denied tenure to faculty members who had already been approved for it. And now they have picked Scott Atlas to be the college's commencement speaker. So members of the New College Florida class of 2023 have decided to celebrate commencement one last time the old way, before Ron DeSantis came to town. They are holding their own commencement ceremony the day before the official one. They have a GoFundMe page to cover the costs. They have a venue and they have a celebrity commencement speaker lined up with a name to be announced soon. It's all happening next week. One last time. That is our show for tonight. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.